All right. Um, hey, it is, it is very good to be worshiping together with you. And actually, uh, today we're going to be talking together about worship and song. And so we're going to conclude our service with a couple songs. So two songs at the end, kind of a little extended moment of uh, worshiping God in song. So um, uh, I became a senior pastor when I was 35 years old, and my first pastorate was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And the first year I was there, I thought, you know, um, I, I, I stepped into a church that had two different styles of worship. They had a traditional service and a contemporary service. And the traditional service, it had, um, it was kind of dwindling, and they had a lackluster choir that was also kind of dwindling, and a bell choir. And then we had a contemporary service that uh, was sort of like one of these happy, clappy 1990s contemporary service, you know, like where you, anyway, that's, um, but, uh, but I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, we, we, I cast vision to the church, like we are going to get rid of these two different styles of worship, and we are going to be a unified church worshiping with one style of worship. And that didn't help us move into becoming a unified church. And I came up with a plan that I thought was, uh, it was going to be like a no-brainer, like this was going to work. And um, I had only been there for a year. Again, this is just a year into my very first senior pastorate. And, um, and, I, and I came to discover that one of my favorite Christian recording artists lived in Albuquerque. His name was Fernando Ortega. And I was actually introduced to him through uh, this particular artist. And I listened to him in my early 20s. And I'm like, this guy lives in New Mexico. And so I reached out to him, and we connected, and we kind of hit it off. Like, we, we connected, we developed a friendship, and I thought, I'm going to go after Fernando, and I'm going to bring him to my church so that he can be our worship leader. And I thought, this is the silver bullet. Fernando was an eighth-generation New Mexican, so he knew the culture, knew the landscape. He would be respected. And, and of course, you know, traditional people, he knew how to do hymns, uh, contemporary worship music. He had worked at megachurches. One point was the uh, worship director at Lake Avenue Church here in Pasadena. And, and I thought, if I just hired Fernando Ortega, this would be the silver bullet. And sure enough, uh, I managed to convince him uh, to come and to be our worship pastor at uh, Hope Church in Albuquerque. And, um, and his first Sunday leading worship was our last Sunday doing two different styles of music. And you know what happened? Nobody was happy. Uh, Fernando, it turned out, was a little bit too uh, mellow for the contemporary service, and he was a little bit too contemporary for the traditional service. Uh, the people that liked Fernando were the Fernando groupies that came to our church as a result of him coming on staff. I was a Fernando groupie, so I liked it. And, um, but uh, I, I, I had in my mind that, that one verse in the Gospels where Jesus talks to the, the people about the ministry of John the Baptist and himself. And he said, John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of repentance, and, and you didn't hear him. And, and he said, I came eating and drinking, and you're calling me a glutton and a drunk. And he says, you guys are like children in a marketplace who they said, look, uh, you, you played a dirge, and we did not mourn, and you played a flute, and we did not dance. And it's like, you people are never happy. <laughs> and... Of course, the topic of musical worship is complicated, 
and it is conflicted and it creates divisions within churches. I wonder if this church in its history ever knew anything about divisions as it related to worship music. And um, I, I know before I got here, this church actually made the move from going from two different services to one. And that is a tricky, difficult, painful thing. And I think originally I was pretty critical of, of our church, but as, I, as, I, as I've grown and matured, I've come to see that the reason why people get so up in arms about music is because music is so important to us. And there, there, are, there are moments in your life where a song carried you through. And there are lyrics to that hymn that, that meant so much to you when you lost a spouse, when you, when you were walking through that valley. It was those lyrics, it was those songs that carried you through. And so music is so significant and so important to our own spiritual lives and our spiritual formation. And of course, within the scriptures, uh, music plays a massive role. And I don't know if you thought about this, but, but music is so central to the Bible and it's so central to the life of the people of God. You know, Martin Luther once said that next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. And Karl Barth once quipped that if he ever made it to heaven, the first person he would look up was Mozart and only after that inquire about Augustine, Calvin, and Luther. And you know, when, when you read the Bible, you realize that Luther and Bart were only mildly exaggerating. In the beginning, at the very creation of all things, Job tells us that there at the beginning, the angels sang for joy. And in the final consummation, at the end of all things, we will join in that eternal song. And in between the beginning and the end, we are commanded again and again in Scripture to sing and to make music. And so, for example, in the Psalms, there are some 100 commands to sing and make music. Uh, Psalm 149, we just heard read, it says, praise the Lord, make a new song to him, sing to him a new song. You know, and it's not just the Psalms. I mean, it's all over the Bible. When the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea and they got to the other side, they broke out in singing and in music. And when the temple was built and when they went into battle and when the children of Israel coronated David as king and when they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city, the children of Israel sang and they made music. And the instruments they used were the harp and the lyre and the cymbals and the tambourines and the shofars and the flutes and the stringed instruments and the pipes. And of course, some of the great mothers and fathers of our faith were songwriters. Miriam and Mary wrote songs that the church sings. And uh, Moses and David wrote songs. And, and it's not just in the Old Testament, but music and singing, it, it is, it's central in the New Testament as well. At the birth of Jesus, Mary composed a song. And when the angels announced the birth of Jesus, the angels broke forth with singing and with music. And on the night before his crucifixion, do you know that one of the last things Jesus did when he departed out from the upper room and went into the garden, he sang a song with his disciples. 
And when Paul and Silas were in prison, they sang. And when, and when, when Paul writes his letters to the Ephesians and Colossians, he commands them to sing. And James said, if anyone is happy, let them sing. And so clearly, so clearly music and singing is central to the life and the formation of the people of God. But what I want to do is I want to ask the question, why? Why is music and singing so central? Now, there's a lot of answers we could give to this. There's a lot of reflection we could give to the role of music and singing. Uh, We could give a very expansive view of this topic, and we could talk together about how the finite beauty of music that we taste and experience is simply an echo to the infinite beauty and goodness that called all things into being. And we could speak of how music itself can point us to the transcendent eternal God who is the source and the ground of all beauty and goodness in this world that we experience. So we could talk about this from an expansive kind of topic, but I'm not gonna do that. Uh, We could talk about this topic from a kind of more critical vantage point. Uh, We could talk together about how the contemporary Christian music scene has oftentimes created a commodity of worship music, another product to be bought and sold in the marketplace to a niche group of consumers, and how perhaps uh, with all of the money and the celebrity involved, it can corrupt uh, the very thing itself. Uh, But that would be too negative, wouldn't it? So we're not going to talk about that. What I want to do is I want us to look at a little passage in the New Testament that gives us a window into the role that singing and music played in the life of the first century church. And in this way, it's a fascinating little passage. And it's kind of like you almost miss it if you don't pay attention. But but here it gives us a window into the role that music and song played in the life of the early church. And so uh, if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Ephesians chapter five. And I wanna make five simple observations about the role that worship and song, that music and singing plays in the life of the local church. And the passage begins in chapter five, verse 18. It says this, and do not get drunk with wine. It's interesting, a passage that speaks to us about corporate worship begins with the command not to get drunk. And you think, well, that doesn't really make sense. You know, I know there's a lot of things I try to warn my friends and neighbors about when I invite them to church. You know, um, the sermon might go too long. Uh, The music might not be quite your taste. Sometimes people lift hands and sway or whatever, and you might find that a little off-putting. But but I've never had to warn somebody not to get drunk when they go to church. Why does this passage begin with a command not to get drunk? Well, it's simply this. In the first century, uh, their gatherings were a gathering. Their worship was worship around a table. And when they came together to worship, they actually fashioned, the the first early Christian communities fashioned the way they did worship after a common Greco-Roman kind of evening meal party, a dinner party. And oftentimes uh, you would have 
uh, trade guilds that would come together or maybe philosophical schools that would come together and they would share in a meal. And it typically had two parts. There would be the meal proper where you would eat and you would drink together. And then following the meal, there would be a time of maybe entertainment, maybe a philosophical lecture, uh, maybe some singing, maybe some other shady business. And usually in that second part, Although the eating would stop, the drinking would continue. And the early church took this two-part kind of frame of a meal followed by uh, a service uh, to frame their own times together. And so the first part, they would come together, they would share in the Lord's Supper. And so they would eat a meal together and they would drink. And fortunately for them, they didn't just have a thimble of grape juice and a little piece of dry cracker, like what we have for communion. No, they ate a legit meal. You know, they would put on the lamb and they would have the fresh baked, you know, matzah and they'd be tearing that stuff apart and they would have wine and they'd be sharing together. And so Paul says, look, uh, some of you came out of pagan backgrounds. You, you've been to those trade guild dinners where you would drink a little too much. You'd get filled with the spirits and you'd start acting crazy. He says, when you, when you come together as the people of God, do not get drunk on wine. Don't come underneath the influence of those kind of substances. Instead, he says, you be filled or come underneath the influence of the Holy Spirit. As you, he says, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You know, I originally used to read this text as a individualistic command to me in my car to sing and make melody to the Lord. But this is not a individualistic text. This is a text that is addressing our time together. It's talking about corporate worship and specifically about corporate singing. And so let's just make five observations about what he teaches us here about corporate singing. Number one, I want you to see that in the early church, there was a diversity of music. Uh, worship and song was diverse. By the way, just a little note on my slide. <laughs> I, I put together some slides, and my daughter, Lucy, was looking at them, and she said, Dad, your slides are so boring. Can't you jazz them up a little bit? And then she suggested that I put a little like emoji-type thing of Ryan and Natalie on the slides. <laughs> And so I did that. I got to church. Ryan saw the beard and thought it was inappropriate and gave me some proper instructions how to make his beard more Ryan-esque. <laughs> There's no point to the pictures. They're just there because Lucy said my slides were boring. But look at the text. <laughs> he says, address one another. And notice he uses these three, these three terms. He talks about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then he speaks of singing, or the word in Greek is actually psalming. And it may imply using musical instruments, which is interesting. Psalming and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So in the early church, we have evidence of an explosion, really, of hymns that were being written. And it's fascinating, even in the New Testament itself, uh, most New Testament scholars can, can trace some dozen hymns that are embedded into the text 
of Scripture. And so, for example, a lot of people see in Colossians 1, where Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, all things were created by him and for him and through him and so on and so forth. Many people see in that, uh, uh, perhaps Paul is incorporating in there a, f- a little piece of an early Christian hymn. And there are other sections, 1 Timothy 3.16, John 1 is believed to to carry some hymnic quality. But the point is this, that when the early Christians began to worship God, when they began to respond to the message of the God of Israel and what he had done in Jesus Christ, their natural response was to sing and to make music and to do it in all sorts of different ways. And you know, wherever the gospel has traveled, new musical forms have taken shape and the gospel has incarnated itself. It has translated itself in a variety of different cultural musical forms. It was uh, the great uh, African scholar, Laman Sane, who said that translation is the birthmark of Christianity. That wherever the church moves into new territory and a new church is born, one of the marks of that church will be the way it translates itself into its host culture. So that African Christianity looks very African. Asian Christianity looks very Asian. European Christianity looks very European. And so too with music. Christian music in these different cultures begins to take on kind of the cultural tastes and flares and language and style of that host culture. And here's the thing, I, I just think a lot of us tend to, uh, and maybe, maybe this is true for you, this has been true for me, a lot of us operate with an unexamined assumption of the superiority of our own musical tastes. And you see this in church. I remember, you know, introducing new contemporary songs back in my church in Albuquerque or whatever. You know, people who are traditionalists, they say, you know, these weren't the hymns that Jesus sang, you know. Well, yeah, they, they didn't say that. Nobody says that, or they shouldn't say that. But what they're saying is, these weren't the hymns that were written by uh, white Europeans in the 19th century, or these were not the hymns that were written by a different people. You know, like, like every, every, you know, every different era has an explosion of new forms and styles of Christian music and of worship music. And you know what? That is a gift to the church. It is, it, is, it is one of the most compelling and beautiful aspects of Christianity, is its ability to translate itself in a wide variety of cultures. And, and, and so the gospel comes into America, and, and you know we've got gospel music. You know, one of uh, the, the primary artistic forms that developed on American soil, arguably the most influential artistic art form, or, you know, art form that, that, that was birthed on American soil is gospel music, coming out of the spirituals and um, influencing oftentimes, uh, you know, within the black church, you know, music growing up and then, you know, influencing Elvis. You know, Elvis got his stuff from the church, gospel music. Anybody here seen the Elvis docudrama? Yeah, but here's the point, is that the gospel begins to incarnate itself in different cultures and different forms. So 
What we want to continually see is an explosion of new, fresh music because the gospel makes you sing. You know, the gospel has got to be expressed by every new culture and time and people. It's got to be expressed in our own heart language. And, you know, one of the beauties of the Jesus movement back in the 60s is uh, that the hippies began to take up their acoustic guitars and start singing these simple praise choruses. And all of a sudden, the gospel began to incarnate itself within kind of the life of this countercultural hippie movement in the 60s and 70s. And, and the, the, the contemporary Christian music was born right there. And that's a good, it's a good. So, so w- musical worship is diverse, and we need to celebrate and enjoy its diversity. Second, worship in song is directed to God. Now, now maybe this is obvious, and maybe it, it even goes without saying, but look at what it says in the text. It says, make melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, I guess you could say it's obvious that if you go to worship, you are going to worship God. If you are singing, you are singing to God. But I don't think we think about this enough our music in song or our worship in song is actually sung prayer. And when we come into this place, I know sometimes you're like, I don't know that song or I don't like that song or that's not my song, you know? Listen, that is prayer and we are invited corporately to engage together in that song. And so... It it is directed to the Lord. It's not directed first and foremost to your own musical sensibilities and tastes. These are sung prayers that we direct to God. Now, I know sometimes we can think like, well, why does God need to be praised anyway? I mean, throughout the scriptures, God commands us to praise him. And C.S. Lewis, in a little book he wrote on the Psalms, talked about how this always confused him. And he was like, what is God, some egomaniac? He needs us to keep affirming him, you know? He's got, he's got like a low, you know, uh, uh, self-esteem and he just constantly needs to be affirmed, you know, praise you, you're great, you're powerful. Yes, thank you very much, you know? <laughs> and C.S. Lewis points out that, of course, that view of praise was wrongheaded from the very start because it began with an inaccurate view of God. Who is God. God is, is, is infinite fullness within God's self. God is utterly satisfied and complete within. God is an infinite ocean of delight and joy and fullness. In other words, you don't have anything to contribute to God's fullness. He is already infinitely full. And so why does God command us to praise? It is not because God needs it. It's not because God needs us to enjoy God. It's because you need to enjoy God. And you know, when you, when you, when you find something you love, don't you find that when you can praise it and share that with somebody else, it actually enhances and increases the joy that you're having in it? And so you're eating that steak and you're like, oh, it's not just it, like you're eating the thing, but you want to really like just fully enjoy it. So you're like, oh, this is so good. This is so good. Oh, have a bite of this. This is so good. And, and it's like when you share it, it enhances and increases the joy. Or you see the sunset, you're like, look at that sunset. Oh, it's so good. And, and, and the sight of it was one thing, but the praise actually increases the joy you experience. And, and so too with worship. 
When we speak about the greatness of God, when we're saying, praise you, God, it's like we are enhancing and increasing our joy in God. We are what the, what the older Christians said, we are seeking to make ourselves happy in God. So worship is directed to the Lord. Thirdly, worship and song is not only for God. This is the interesting thing in the text. Worship and song is also for each other. Look at what it says, addressing one another. And this is kind of interesting because we're like, I thought our praise was addressed to God. Oh, wait, where's my... Did you want to, you want to see that picture a little bit more? There it is. <laughs> But isn't this fascinating in this text? He's talking about the worship of the early church, and he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And on one level, that is an actual description of the type of songs they would sing. I think it's called antiphonal. Is that? I'm looking at some of my Berkeley school. Of, no, never mind. But you know when there's like a call and response sort of thing? Come on, Berkeley School of Music. <laughs> never mind. Help me out afterwards, okay, Gonzalo? Victoria, yes, you will. You'll, you got my back. Um, but you know, they, they would have these songs that had calls and response, kind of like that song, Do You Know the World is Broken? Do you feel the shadows turning? Do you know that all the... the yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> but that's call and response. And so on one level, it literally was speaking to one another. But there's another sense in which our worship together is meant to build us up together as a family. And it is space. Sometimes when you are singing words and you're not feeling them, sometimes you are in a place where you can't even mouth the words. There's too much pain in your heart. Just to open your mouth and sing, you would break down in tears. And you need your brothers and sisters to sing those words with a greater confidence and faith than maybe you have in this moment. Because by being in this company of faith that sometimes believes stronger and better than you do, you find your own faith over the long course of your life bolstered and supported and sustained. We need to be a community who sings together because we bolster each other's faith in doing so. And, and you know, in, in another sense, the words we speak can also just build one another up in the gospel. I was, um, there, there's this beautiful recording that the, the, the band Maverick City Music, and you guys know Maverick City, we do some of their songs here, but they did a recording recently in a Miami prison. And they invited a bunch of inmates who had formed a choir to join with them in this recording of their album called Kingdom. And they have this song um, where, it starts with, with uh, it's got this refrain, it goes, thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, thine is the glory forever and ever, amen. And it, it's speaking directly to God. And then right after the chorus, uh, Kirk Franklin, who is, who's leading the group, starts speaking the gospel over uh, the inmates. And he says to them, he says, he says uh, how many of you know that God created you to fly? He says, listen, don't you know you're too big for this planet? You were created for something bigger, something greater. You can't get so distracted by your right now that you forget your tomorrow. And, you know, he, 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 on one level, it can almost sound like some cliche lines that he's speaking, you know, 
But it's not cliche at all. He's speaking over people who feel like, I have lost everything. Life is over. And he says, it is not over. God is not through with you yet. God, God has got something so much bigger than you. You will be glorified. You will share in a new creation. And then he says, Chandler, Chandler, uh, he, he talks to another worship leader in Chandler. He says, Chandler, Chandler. He says, uh, tell him, t- tell him, you know? And then, and then Chandler says, if you want to know what heaven looks like, he says, it's looking like me and you. If you want to know what heaven sounds like, just let it fill the room. And what is he saying? He's saying, what is heaven? It is a community of redeemed, broken people. People have lost their lives in themselves, but God has found them and he's brought them back and he's brought them together, a community of older and young and black and brown and white. And, and, and he's brought them together in one new family. And when they raise their voices, he's like, this is what heaven looks like. And what is that? He's speaking the gospel over them through the song. And so our worship in song is not just to God, it's also to one another. But worship and song is also heartfelt. Look back at the text again. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You know, Jesus said, this people draws near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, don't misunderstand. When he speaks about the heart, he's not saying that when you sing worship songs, you got to feel something, you know, deep down inside. And I can remember as a kid going away to camp, you know, youth camp, and I would feel something in these worship services, you know? And then I'd go back to my old church and I'd be like, how come it doesn't feel the same the way it did at camp? It's like, well, probably because the lights weren't down low (laughs) and the girl you had a crush on wasn't sitting next to you. And, you know, I mean, whatever, right? Um, The Bible's use of heart it's, it's more expansive than that. The Bible is talking about bringing your full self to God, your mind, your intellect, your heart, your will, your desires. And it's inviting us to bring our hearts and to voice what is in our heart in the presence of God through these songs. And you know, as well as I do, as well as any lovesick teenager has known, that sometimes only a song will do to express what's really going on in your heart. And there has been those moments in my own life and in your life where where it it just seems like like, you don't even know how to speak what is in your heart. And somehow in in that space of, of worshiping God in song, all of a sudden there's a lyric, there's a line, and it just catches you up short and you find yourself, you can't speak anymore, and God breaks in, and and it's like your heart is exposed before God in that moment. And so genuine worship in song is heartfelt, and and we are invited to come into this place and open up our hearts and our lives before God. Are you? Do you? Finally, Our music and singing is inhabited by God. We're going to close with this point, but I think this is probably the most stunning and the most important aspect of this text. And I can remember um, 
Years ago, I, I was sitting in a class with my professor on Ephesians, whose name is Clint Arnold. This was at Talbot School of Theology. And I remember he started to open up this passage, and, and Dr. Arnold had done uh, a lot of work on the book of Ephesians and kind of, you know, and, and this was a, an exegesis in the, in the letter to Ephesians. And, and so we're pulling apart the Greek text. And, and I remember he opened up this passage in a way that I had never heard before and I have never forgotten. He started to talk about this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he points out, like, it's kind of interesting. Paul heads off this section about corporate singing with a comment about being filled with the Spirit. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But instead, he says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And he said that commentators have been debated and divided over What's the connection between the filling of the Spirit and musical worship? Is musical worship the outflow or the result of being filled with the Spirit? Or is musical worship the means, the tool, the resource you use in order to be filled with the Spirit? And it's kind of a technical question, you know? Uh, do you come into this place and once you've been filled up with the Spirit and you come in and you're charged up and you're ready to go, you go to church and, and now you explode in song. And so singing, you know, addressing one another in psalms and hymns is the outflow of it. Or is it you walk into a place and you're empty and it's actually in the gathered community when you're singing that God starts to refill your tank again, and you start to come underneath the influence of the love and the goodness and the power and the grace of the Spirit as we gather in the community. And Clint Arnold said he believes that clearly it's the latter and not the former. And his argument was this. He says, in the letter to the Ephesians, he says, Paul, Paul develops this very, very unique idea in the first century. Um, in fact, this was a radical innovation in the, in the first century. And it was this idea that God did not dwell in temples made with hands. And, you know, up to this point in salvation history, I mean, the, the, the Jews got this. They, they knew that, that heavens could not contain the God of Israel, but they did believe that God came to uniquely meet with them in a specific place, a, a geographical location, a sacred space, the temple in Jerusalem. And of course, uh, Paul's other audience, his, his, his Gentile audience, they would have always associated meeting with one of the gods by going to one of the temples. Because at the temple, there would be mysterious ritual, and there would be a priesthood, and there would be sacrifices, and, and there would be, you know, kind of gyrations made, and, and sacrifices offered, and incense would raise, and you would just sense God is in that place. And here was the innovation. The innovation in the New Testament is that God is not confined. He does not dwell and meet with his people in a sacred building. God doesn't live in a temple in Jerusalem. He doesn't live in the temple to Artemis, which existed in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the world. The God of Israel chose to come 
and actually dwell among his people. And Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 2. He says that the whole structure, he's speaking here of the body of Jews and Gentiles coming together in a family, you know, black and brown and white and old and young and conservative and liberal and left and right or whatever, coming together in one new kind of family grows together and they're joined into a holy temple in the Lord. Here he's speaking of the people of God coming together. And at a macro level, this is conceptually true. At an experiential level, this is congregationally true. When we gather together, when we come together, God chooses to come and be with his people. Didn't Jesus say, if you obey my commandments, I will pray to my father and we will come and make our home with you. God is saying, when you gather, I am with you in your midst. And it's as if he's saying, look, you know, formerly you thought you needed the right sacrifice, you needed the right temple, you needed the right priest in order to really connect with the holy, infinite, and eternal God. But Paul says, God himself has come among us in Jesus to be our sacrifice, to be our priest, and to be our temple so that through Jesus, we might have full access into the very presence and love of God. We might be welcomed in to his family. We might be able to make our home with him because he first came to make his home among us. And that means simply this. And let's invite the worship band as they invite us into a time of singing, that through Christ and through the Spirit's presence among us, God has chosen to come and be with us in this place, among one another. And that as we sing these words, as we pray these words in song, Our words are not just floating up and hitting the ceiling and come down. God is present to our lips and the words that come out. God is present to your heart and the pain you're in, the joy you're experiencing. God is present there. He's inviting you to voice that in song. He's inviting us to voice that together and be formed together into a family. He's inviting us to sing these words and to sing it loud and to mean it, to let it come from our heart. And so let's do that now, shall we? Let's stand together. And let's let's be, can can we be a singing congregation? Can we up the volume of our singing in this room? Can, Can we raise our voice because the God who created heaven and earth has come into this world to to give him his life fully and unreservedly for us in Jesus. And that kind of love demands our deepest praise, our greatest gratitude, our most honest and authentic response. Let's raise our voice to him. Let's sing to him. Let's pray to him. Let's invite him to to be the, the place we build our life. Let's invite him to be our strength through which we can go out and love our neighbors. And let's raise our voice in song to him. And let's do it now.